Hello world, my name is Chris No Bridge and welcome to the DFS Golf Caddy Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to better understand how to optimally approach building fantasy golf lineups on DraftKings. Each week we'll go over the tournament history, golf course architecture, and the player slate on DraftKings. Now while any analysis will look closely at the players and their range of outcomes, this podcast will focus most of our attention on how prior optimal builds should guide us in our decisions for making our lineups. Expect discussions on current optimal builds, the event-specific optimal builds, and how they differ from the last five years of DraftKings optimal builds. Before we get into this week's event at the Players' Championship, I want to quickly talk about myself and how events work on DraftKings. I'm 39 years old, no kids, two dogs, obsessed with golf, and what makes them play well. In my time, I've given over a thousand lessons, and with having a better understanding of how golf equipment works, the biomechanics of swings, and the psychology of golfers themselves, I've got a better idea of why players play well, in what conditions they play well, and in how to predict when they won't. So for the purpose of this podcast, before we get into the rest of the slate, I want to talk about what makes and how DraftKings uh, functions when we're trying to do um, how DraftKings works on their uh, PGA site. So first and foremost, you're given a salary of $50,000. Each player is priced usually between $6,000 at the bottom and usually goes up to just under $12,000. Now, this format has changed throughout the years. It used to be that some players would be priced up into near $13,000, but for most events nowadays, it goes between $12,000 and $6,000. The way DraftKings comes up with these Prices is based off their Vegas odds to win as their outrights. So usually on Sunday night, Monday morning, you'll find all the sites start to put out their uh, odds for players. So usually if you have your top end talent, like your John Roms and your Dustin Johnsons, they're going to be at 10 or 12 to 1. They're going to be priced at 11,800, 11,600 on DraftKings, while your longest odd players are going to be bought at the bottom at the 6K range. So for the purpose of what we're going to be discussing, we're going to be talking about the different ranges when you're building your lineups. Now, usually there's about the same amount of players between your 8K and 9K tier, and what you end up having is between four and six players at 10K and above. Below that, you'll have a large part of your field in the 7K section, and then at the bottom, you have a good percentage of 6K players. So the question that you're always going to try to come up against is, all right, based off the players I have, do I have enough money to put all six players that I want? Usually the answer is no. You've got to make some decisions at the middle and bottom to, def- to, to define how you're going to build that lineup. So what we're going to be going over is looking at all the past optimal lineups in the last five years. So DraftKings began running these contests around 2016, but most regularly around 2017, specifically with the Waste Management Phoenix Open. So what we have here from uh, Fantasy Nationals, we have... I have all the optimal lineups from that year up until today. What we want to do is looking at what lineups were the optimal lineup in in each week. Now, what I mean by that is you can't just have the six highest point accruers to be in a lineup. They've got to fit within a pricing range. So depending on what the player's price was, that dictates what was the best lineup. So in, you know, most years or in most events, In order to maximize the value of your players, you're going to have to try to fit as many players as close to the $50,000 salary point. What we found by looking deep into all these uh, trove of of, uh, lineups is that a lot of these lineups have a lot more left over. They have two, three, four thousand dollars left over. So instead of having your a traditional lineup of having 
a $10,000 player, a $9,000, a couple eights, a seven and a six. You might have lineups where there's four $7,000 players, one $8,000 and one $9,000. So what we want to do in this podcast is to go over all those, figure out and try to project what is happening in each event. Why is it that some events you have a lot more left over and a lot of 7K and 8K players making the optimal lineup and you have other events where it's much more price at the top and so then you have a lot less left over. So in order to do all this, we have to look at all the players, what their pricing is, putting them into tiers to start to group off sections and where, and how we want to attack uh, our builds. So now that we have the $50,000 set up, we've got the pricing tiers understood. What we have to understand is now there's an ownership and leverage discussion. Now in these fields, you usually have, you know, uh, you're, you have depending on the event you're playing on, price, on DraftKings, you're going to have, you know, between... 20 and 120,000 people playing these events. A lot of what you have to decide on beforehand is what is going to be your game selection. Now, really, there's kind of two umbrellas. You have cash games and you have uh, guaranteed prize pools or what you'll be say as GPPs. Now, GPPs is where the fun ones are. This is where you have your millionaire makers. You've got your 100,000 up top prize pools. Uh, whereas cash games is usually just means you're trying to uh, be better than half the field and double your money. So you put in, you buy into a ten dollar, uh, a ten dollar double up, and then if you can beat half the field, you'll make a ten dollar profit. For the purpose of this, I'm gonna not focus on cash games. We're gonna focus on GPPs. Now within those GPPs, there are three essentially types of formats. You have single entry, so you get to make one lineup. You have your three maxes where you get to make three lineups, and then you have your MMEs or your mass multi-entry. Now, this can be either up to 20 or even up to 150. Your big events, your millionaire makers, any event where there's going to be a six-figure or even five-figure uh, top prize are going to be uh, 150 lineups or more. So when you decide this, when you first decide, am I going to be playing a lot more single entry, three max, or or MMEs, that does dictate how you're going to construct your lineups and what kind of pricing you're going to be going after. If you're going to be making 150 lineups, we could take a lot more chances with players from places that don't seem like they would make sense. A lot more of your 6K players and your lower 7K players. If you're going to be playing a lot more three max and single entries, you're going to try to focus more on value. Now, we'll, just, we'll go over these discussions when we talk about these lineups. But when it comes down to it, what we're trying to do is get as close as possible to the perfect lineup. The perfect lineup, the optimal lineup, has the exact six players that you can, the best six players you can fit based off of points. Now let's talk about points. When you're picking these players, you're not just picking specifically just for who's going to finish finish in first, second, third, or fourth place. Obviously, if you've got the top six players, that's going to be to your benefit. But it's not just about player position. That's part of the that's part of the point process on DraftKings. But a lot of it goes down to birdies versus bogeys versus pars. If a player has 18 pars or a player has 19 birdies and 19 bogeys, they both end up at even par, but the 19 birdies, the nine birdies and nine bogeys brings you a lot more points. So in all these discussions, we're looking for players who are going to accrue the most amount of points. Now, obviously, we don't want someone who has two birdies and two bogeys all the time. If someone has six birdies and one bogey, that's going to be to our advantage. And the idea is, is that we can find someone who can be aggressive while also minimizing their bogeys. They're the ones who are going to most likely rise up to the top of the leaderboard. So now that we've discussed points, another thing we talk about is recent form versus course history. Everyone's going to talk about, okay, is this player 
playing well now or are we picking this player just because they've done well at this course if they got good course history and great recent form that's ideal but that's not going to be the case for a lot of golfers as we make our decisions so these are the things that we'll be discussing each week when we talk about the player slate another thing too is an ownership now, for each player chosen by in, in these three mags or MMEs, we're going to eventually see, okay, this player has 10% of the field are, are going to choose him or, or we have 20%. What it comes down to is usually depending on the, on the price tier, anything above 20% is someone that's going to be what we call chalky or someone who is going to have a lot of ownership. Now, on the other end, if you have a player that has... 3% ownership and you've got and you own a lot of them and he plays well you've now gained leverage in being able to uh if he plays well jump a lot more of the field in in your pool these are all the kind of uh variables that we're going to be discussing when we go through the the player pool themselves but just keep these in mind and as we go through them I'll, I'll make sure and kind of touch on on the idea of time behind each uh, topic as we go through so having said all that, let's now get into what I've kind of done the last few months in analyzing the optimal builds. So what I wanted to kind of dive into is first look at what is the lineup style and lineup structure that has won the most throughout the history of DraftKings. So I've got a database now of about a, of 145 events leading up to last week's Arnold Palmer Invitational. So in your most uh, likely scenario, your most uh, likely build, um, the one that happened that occurred the most over those 145 events is a build in which we start off with a 10K player, a nine, an eight, two sevens, and a six. This happened in 13 of the 45 events. So it's still not even 10% of the time, but that is still the most uh, common build when we have up the, that we have going out there. The next most common is one where instead of the 9K, we have a 10K two 8Ks, two 7Ks, and one 6K. This has happened 10 times in the 145-player stretch. So the point of all this is that once we've cataloged all these different builds, we can start to see, okay, within this event, is this an event that has a likelihood to have a lot of money left over within a more aggressive build, or does it tend to have more balanced builds with more money left over? What I want to do is then look at each week's events and compare it to what has happened in the past throughout, throughout that time. So looking at uh, the player championship, we essentially only have four events. Now, it started back in 2017, but in 2020, you'll remember, we had one round where Hideki Matsuyama shot nine under, and then it was canceled the rest of the way because of COVID. So we have an interesting one here. So let's first look back at 2017. 2017, our winner that year, was Siwoo Kim, and he was priced at 6,600, so near the bottom. In that year, there were four players that in that 6K range, one in the 7 and one in 10K to in the optimal build. So we have Sergio Garcia at 1020, uh, Louis Usais in the 7,500, Rafa Cabrillo-Beo at 69, Cal Stanley 67, Siwoo Kim 66, and Ian Poulter 6,600. This total cost of the team was 44500 That leaves 5500 left on the table. That is an extremely high amount. If you talk to anyone who's trying to build lineups, you usually are not trying to leave that much on the table. The usual range in order to kind of make sure you're differentiated by also, but also using value with the players is keeping it between 500 and 1000 In this case, there was over 5000 left over. So this is, you would, this is what you would think would be unique. Look at 2018. Our winner was Webb Simpson, and this is one of the only. This is one of the unique ones. 
There were five players in the 7K in the 7K range and one in the 6K for the Optima build. That left 7,000. In my database, this is the third most left over. And it's the only time in the history of DraftKings where there are five players in the 7K range and one in the 6K range that made the Optima build. I mean, this, is, this only happened once. But again, it's a large amount left over at this specific event. And uh, just as a reminder, so Webb Simpson was at 7,300. He was the most expensive player in the Altimo build. The rest were Xander Shawfleet at 73. So a great player, but at the time was still a relative unknown. Charles Schwartzel at 7,300. Jimmy Walker at 7,200. Jason Duffner at 7,200. And Harold Varner III at 6,700. So a lot of players we know today, but at the time weren't very big yet because this is still 2018. Following year in 2019, now we finally have a, a high-end player here. We've got Rory McIlroy at 10-8, who was the winner. Next was Tommy Fleetwood at 8,800. Jim Furyk at 7,100. Brent Snedeker at 6,900. Eddie Pepperell, 6,800. And Johnny Vegas at 6,100. This still left 3,500 on the table. So now we've got three years in a row here where the optimal build left a significant amount of money on the table. Again, we're usually looking for that 500 to 1,000. And in all three cases, we have over 3,000 left over. So I think we have to kind of understand if we're going to build for this specific event, we've got to allow for a wider range of, of money left over to kind of expand our belief in what is considered value for this event. So we skipped 2020 because the event wasn't fully held and last year in 2021 Justin Thomas won at 9900 Bryson DeChambeau was at 9700 Paul Casey was at 8400 Sergio Garcia 7500 Lee Westwood 7200 and Brian Harmon 6900 this build was 49,600 so only left 400 so this is a little more uh, kind of typical of what you would imagine most of these events would be having said that as we go through this more and more I'm going to tell you that Really, most events, the ultimate build is more than a thousand left over. And so uh, going for just a 400 to uh, a 500 to a thousand left over build actually kind of takes you away from uh, the likelihood of getting an optimal lineup, but more likely just more value in your event. So a lot of what this discussion is going to come down to is do we focus on just maintaining or extrapolating as much value from our lineup as possible? Or if we're really trying to go after the optimal build, if the ultimate goal is to make the perfect lineup, we've got to uh, allow ourselves to be more exploited by having uh, less value and more um, and more likely for, for optimal builds. Uh, this is kind of a discussion point that if you go back into poker discussions and how to play optimal, you've got GTO theorists versus exploitable theorists. And so this kind of goes to that, to, it has kind of some discussion on that, but not necessarily exact, exact same lane. So now let's talk about how this, how this is, how, what we expect this year to be. Well, when we look at this year's player pool or this year's, uh, this year's uh, slate, very much like the last, like last year, and the amount of players that we have, we have five players over 10k, about 10 players in the 9k section, another 10 to dozen in the 8k, and then the rest down at 7k or below. Something I want to kind of bring up, just as a little side side fact, is this year again the event is held in March. The last two events have been held in March, so the 2021 edition, the Justin Thomas one, and the 2019 version that Rory won, were both held in March. Prior to that, every one had been done in May. Now, this may not seem like a huge deal, but as we see from the weather forecast this week, when it goes back in from May to March, you've got much cooler temperatures, much higher likelihood of winds, and also rain. 
Something else too, which is a little more confusing for a lot of these players, is the wind direction. Now, when you're playing in, in March in Florida, you're gonna get more wind coming from the north, whereas in the past, when, you, in the, when it's in May, if there's any wind, which usually is not the case, it comes from the south. So for a lot of players who have a lot of experience playing, you know, seven, eight, 12 years, this is a little different the last few years in how this event's being played. This week, the weather looks atrocious. We've got rain, wind, uh, Ice temperatures. I mean, we're supposed to get in the low third, in the low to mid thirties to start Sunday morning. But with all the thunder, that's going to be the one that's going to have the largest effect on the on the field because it's going to be forcing players to stop, get off the course, rewarm up, and come back again. If this is going to be the case, we're going to want to focus on players you think have the patience <laughs> to want to sit through the changes, go back and forth, who are going to want to, you know, come off, come back, and regain their their playing form. So part of what I was looking at when I was looking at all these players is who has played the last couple of weeks in Florida and is used to kind of the tougher winter, colder conditions and who is not. And a significant portion of the top end players have had chosen to not play the Florida event. So, so most of them have not played an event for three or four weeks dating back to when the last event was played in California. For anybody that golfs, playing in California, playing in Florida, totally different things. So for these players, even they have to make that adjustment. So one decision I made is I deleted the, uh, anybody who did not play any events in Florida. So the last two weeks they were at the Honda and also at um, Arnold Palmer Invitational. Anyone who did not play either is off my board. And so to be honest with you, picking having a player who only played in one of those weeks is probably the right balance of being patient, but also having some rhythm built in for, for this week's events. So now we look at the player pool here that I've got set up. And at the top, we've got John Rahm, Rory, Colin Morikawa, JT, and Victor Hovland. All have had some success or some experience playing this course, but the one that has the most and has the, the most elite uh, finishes is Justin Thomas. Uh, he's got a first and a third in the last five years. Rory has the first place as well, but also has two has missed the cut twice. Now, when you're looking at when I'm making my decision who to take up here, if we go back to who has played the last couple of weeks and who hasn't, we can see that uh, Rory obviously played last week and he started off great and then kind of tailed off to the end to finish in tenth in thirteenth um, place. John Rahm played last week, first time playing at Arnold Palmer and he finished seventeenth. Victor Hovland looked like he was going to cruised to victory, but the last day kind of took him, so he finished in second place, whereas Colin and JT did not play either events. So I absolutely, I automatically eliminated Morikawa and JT, so the focus now goes down to Rom, Rory, and Hovland. When we're looking at what what markers uh, give us the best predictions for who's going to play well here, it usually comes down to who can position themselves off the tee properly on a peak die course, who's got good irons, and when you do miss the green here, because they will miss a lot of greens here, who can get up and down. And uh, one interesting stat that came up, that in the the last 70 top 10, last 70 players who finished in the top 10, 64 of the 70 gained around the green. Now, John Rahm in the last three weeks has been absolutely elite off the tee on approach, but he has not gained around the green. And there's something there's something clearly wrong there. He's not feeling comfortable. Uh, just been hearing talk now that he's going back to an, uh, back to his old putter this week, which could help his putting game, but doesn't necessarily change anything about what he's struggling with with around the green. So I've eliminated Rom off the board for myself. Victor Hovland, one of the best ball strikers on tour, but again, not great around the greens. 
And Justin Thomas, obviously, we've already just we've already got rid of because he's not playing or did not play the Honda or the Arnold Palmer. This leaves Rory McIlroy. So Rory obviously started off great last week and fell apart a bit, so there might be some concern there. But what I care more about is that his around the green game and his approach game is still strong. Really, the only thing he kind of struggled with last week was his putting. He lost a stroke in putting. That came off of five straight weeks of gaining strokes putting. And for me, he looks like his game is around is running in that right shape. He's won on this course before. It just feels like it's an event where he's gonna be playing well. And if we're gonna be if we are gonna be using a player above 10k, he's the only one I'm gonna consider. So for us, he's gonna be in our player pool. The next range we're gonna be looking at then is gonna be in the 9k range. And there are all kinds of great players here. Patrick Cantley, Dustin Johnson, Xander Shoffley, Hideki. Scotty Scheffler, the winner last week, Jordan Smith, uh, Jordan Spieth, and Cam Smith. Now, this is where we've got to start to make decisions on whether or not we want to build using 9K players. Initially, Hideki Matsuyama was the only guy I truly consider, but there's been talk of him having some neck issues he's dealing with. And I don't know about you, but when I've got a hurt neck, the last thing I want to do is dig out balls out of six-inch rough in the 40-degree weather with winds blowing 30 miles an hour. So I'm not saying he can't play well, but his exposure to me is going to be a little more limited before I, I dive in on him. Uh, Xander, DJ, Cantley all did not play the last two weeks. Uh, neither did Cam Smith uh, or Jordan Spieth. So really the only other guy we can look at is Scotty Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler is on fire. He's won two of the last three weeks. The other one was a seventh place finish. He's got the full game. He he may not be, he's a long hitter, but not necessarily straight. But his irons have been exceptional. He's got a decent short game. And his putter has been on fire. So the question now becomes, do you trust a young, not necessarily a rookie, but only been on, on the tour for a couple of years now, to somehow find a way to have another high-end finish? I mean, it, to me, it's stressful to play that many events and to contend for that much. And for him already to have a first ascent in the first last three weeks tells me that there may be some, maybe some likelihood of him to kind of trail back and fall back a bit. Now, I, he's someone I'm still going to consider playing, but it's, again, not something I'm going to dive into. So really, when I look at the full 9K tier, I don't feel like it's a very strong tier. So for me, I'm going to be skipping a lot of these players and focusing the builds through the 8s and the 7K section. Now that we look at the 8K section, we've got Zalatoris, Berger, Ustazen, Kepka, Finau, Neiman, M, Scott, Horschel, and Shane Lowry. So when we're trying to make decisions here, we don't need these players to be in the top 10. Uh, sorry, we don't need these players to, to finish in the top three. Anything in the top 10 is going to pay off their price point now that they're in the AK range. So when I'm looking at this, when I'm looking at this tier here, the one that stands out the most is easily Brooks Kepka. In the 145 events I've got logged in here, he's finished in the optimal lineup 24 times. He only won in six of those instances. So there's another 18 instances in which he made the optimal lineup when he wasn't the winner. So the way that happens is that he has always been criminally underpriced. The guy at, at his skill level and, and uh, talent should not be at 8,600. Now, a lot of that is because he hasn't really played amazing in the last couple months, uh, but he already has. Uh, he, he played at Honda, played well, finished 16th. Maybe not exactly what you're looking for, but this guy can play well when the, when the, the event is big. So my belief is that it's a big event. This guy's looking for the, for the big payday and, and, and the big title and the Players' Championship. You know, everyone will say it's the fifth major. I'm not going to call it a major, but it is one of the elite events, and he's here to, to play. His knee looks healthy. 
His iron game is starting around the corner. His chipping is around is starting around the corner. This feels like a uh, buying in early position and in, in believing in him. Uh, he's also teeing off in the afternoon on Thursday and then supposedly the morning on Friday. Now, what we're going to talk about here is the weather waves. So on Thursday and Friday, everyone usually plays a version of a morning round and an afternoon round. So Brooks Kepka is in what they call the PM-AM wave. So he's going to play in the PM on day one and the AM on round two. Now, this would be the case if there was no weather interruptions. But everything that we've seen so far shows there's going to be lots of thunder. And that is the one thing that always scares the tour. They want to get players and fans off the course as fast as possible. Because back in the 70s, lightning struck, killed a, a patron, and they no longer want that to ever happen again. So what's going to happen here is he's he's supposed to tee off late on Thursday, but what it looks like there's going to be so many interruptions that he's that he's not going to if he does tee off it won't be till much later in the afternoon and he will not be able to finish, which means he's going to be teeing off early on Friday to first play hit to finish this round one, then continues round two, which means that the other side of the wave the AM PM players are going to be playing late on Friday and then if they most likely won't finish, are going to have to play on Saturday. Saturday is going to be chaos. We're looking at, you know, 20 to 35 mile an hour winds in 45 to 55 degree weather, and it's going to be coming from a different direction. So the players who don't finish on Friday have to finish and try to make the cut, playing most of their day and round on Saturday. So even if they do make the cut, they're going to have to be playing on Saturday in the toughest part of the conditions. This would lead that the AMPM wave, those who play in the morning on Thursday and then supposedly late on Friday, have a disadvantage because they're going to be playing in the toughest conditions. It's possible none of this happens, and then I think if if they're if that's not the case and the weather is relatively even, then both sides of the both waves are going to be you know on equal footing. But if the weather is as bad as it looks, those who start on the PM on the PM AM wave are going to have a decided advantage. With that being the case, Kepka is on the right side of the wave. He's a PM AM player. He's played relatively well at this course before. Uh, he's finished. Let me see here. He's had uh, uh, three top thirty fives in the last five years. Uh, he's gained strokes in, in all of them in a couple in a couple of those years. He feels like a player that is rounding the corner, and even if he doesn't necessarily win, he's going to put himself in contention come, come Sunday or Monday if it gets to there. So for me, he is an all-in play. Uh, Shane Lowry, another player who played at Honda a couple weeks ago, finished in second place, British Open winner, Northern Irishman, can play in all conditions. Not someone I'm necessarily con concerned with, uh, when they play in different conditions, but unfortunately he's playing on the bad side. He's playing. He's doing. He's on the AM PM wave. So while I will be rostering him, I'm going to kind of keep it a little more limited. And then lastly, Daniel Berger. Berger is on the correct side. He's on the PM AM wave. He's also played well here. He finished top ten last year. Uh, he's also finished uh, uh, second in the last event. Oh, sorry, fourth in the last event he played at the Honda. So this is someone with good current form and also good history at this course. Uh, if you ask anybody who's who's likely to win multiple times this year, including the first major, Daniel Berger is going to be on that um, at the top of that list. So that concludes our 8K section. So now we're looking at the 7 and 6. I'm going to also focus more on the PM-AM players. So I'll just kind of quickly go through the PM-AM ways that I am kind of leading towards. So that's Matt Fitzpatrick at 7,700. Jason Kokrak at 73, Siwoo Kim at 73, Taylor Gooch, 72, and Chris Kirk at 7,000. 
Now, the only issue is most of these players are going to have a fair amount of ownership. So when we're, when we're, what we're worried about when we're building our lineup is we've got to figure out how much ownership are these players going to have. Using Fantasy National, using the likes button on here, they put out a projection for who's going to be owned at what percentages. And while it's not an exact science, it does give us a pretty good um, understanding of where these players are going to fall in that, in, in that ownership range. So if... We're looking at players in the 7 AK range where we're trying to, to stay away from our players who are in that 15 to 20%. While 10% is not ideal, I'm willing to eat that 10% ownership so long as I can pivot elsewhere and make the lineup as unique as possible. So for what we're going to do here is instead of trying to pivot off of high percentage plays, we're going to take on the high percentage ownership and instead pivot with the amount of money we have left over. Now, I've talked already about how three of the last four events played here. We had over $3,000 left over on the lineups. That is likely not to be the exact way to, to build this optimally, but I believe it gives me enough um, uh, of, of a pivot away from what everybody else is doing. So if I've got enough lineups that are going to be with 1,000 to 1,500 or 2,000 left over, my lineup will still be unique and I'll be able to climb the board even as a lot of these players are boxed into their ownership. So having said that, uh, this week for the Millie Maker, we're going to build 20 lineups. I've got a player pool of 17 players and most of the players are going to be putting at 35 to 40% of each lineup with Brooks Kepka in at 100%. So now that we've got this built, what we want to talk about now is what do we think is going to be the optimal build style for this event? And looking at the events here, it's a lot of this can be based off of who you think is going to win. So for me, if I believe the winner is going to be Brooks Kepka, who I've got in every lineup at 8K, this gives you all kinds of different options for what the optimal lineup should be if the winner is going to be at 8K. Now, we've seen them in all different variations. Um, what will if my, if my other second favorite player is going to be Rory McIlroy, most of my builds are going to be some version of a 10K, 8K build. So when we're looking at the uh, 10K, 8Ks, give me one second here. The line of construction I'm mostly going towards is going to be a 10, 8, 8, 7, 7, 6. This is going to leave with somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 hours left over uh, with Roaring Kepka at 10, 8, and 86. It leaves me plenty of money to, to leave that $1,000 left over, pick the players I want to have, and I'm going to have some uh, lineups allocated towards having all six players on the PM AM wave. Uh, right now, I'm looking at about um, eight of the 20 lineups are going to be uh, all six players playing the PM AM, and then I'll be scattering some of the AM PM players throughout the rest of the lineups there. The one player I like the most in that AM PM wave is going to be Shane Lowry at 8,000, but until then... Uh, I'm going to try to focus on having my lineups mostly be that PM AM wave. Well, this is the first of what is going to be at least weekly podcast talking about this. Uh, I'm sure in six months, you're going to come back and listen to this. I'm going to hate how awful it came off. I appreciate you guys listening and uh, look for the next uh, next podcast next week when we go over the uh, Valspar. And with that... We'll conclude our first DFS Golf Caddy podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great night, everyone.